cycle. Find out more at mebottle.com. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, BGR Nathan. And with us today is Adriana uh, Limbach, who is a personal coach and lead meditation instructor at Mindful, NYC's premier drop-in meditation studio. Her teachings have been featured in the New York Times, Women's Health, and Refinery29. Um, welcome, Adriana. BJ, thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank what you. What a really treat to connect with you this morning. Thank you so much. So why don't we start off the conversation about your book, um, Tea and Cake with Demons, A Buddhist Guide to Feeling Worthy. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about writing this book and uh, the process, how long did it take, and what are some of the discoveries you made about yourself along the way? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so, as I share pretty openly in the book, um, the writing process is not an easy process for me. So this is my <laughs> very first book. Um, and, yeah, it was really interesting, I think, to, to kind of walk into it sort of uh, oblivious as to what a book writing process would actually be like and just kind of uh, learn along the way. And I really a lot of help and guidance and advice from people who are much more experienced at this than me. Um, but, yeah, it was a really, really kind of sticky, sticky, sticky process. Um, so I originally decided that I wanted to write this book, um, in the uh, because, you know, as you said, you mentioned in my bio, I'm a personal coach. I've been working with, you know, the Sweet Integrated Nutrition, uh, which is an online, uh, health coach training program in 35 different countries. At this point, uh, I've been working with them for the past 10 years, and I do these huge coaching programs with their incoming students, who are trying to be coaches. Um, and it really gave me this just kind of wonderful window over the past 10 years of having these conversations and listening to people's stories from across a lot of different cross-sections of life and people from, you know, I mentioned 35 different countries who all come from different like, socioeconomic statuses and belief systems and backgrounds and families of origin and, and you hear this kind of repetitive pattern over and over again years. Um, so just that at some point, the conversation would turn to self-doubt and just the feeling of, of not necessarily being enough, however they defined it, you know, lots of different, lots of different words and lots of different ways of defining it. But it always came out as, as some kind of um, fear of, you know, I'm not smart enough, I'm not well-trained enough, I don't have enough connections, I and not thin enough or pretty enough or, you know, look a, a certain way or, um, you know, and just not uh, resourced enough or um, always this conversation of feeling like there's something missing that I'm just out. Um And as somebody who has 100% across the board felt this way in their life on a, a multitude of different kind of ways, I became really curious about like, whoa, hey, what, like, what is this conversation that I keep having year after year and semester after semester with people from, again, across the world, like really such a, a wide cross-section of the feeling like they're not quite enough. And as I mentioned in the book, you know, the research biologist saw a fish wash up on sea, uh, up on the shore, and they would probably be like a fish and say, oh, it's a dead fish, no big deal, but seeing thousands of 
um, so the stories that reflected the same narrative, and um, they, uh, this is at least at the bottom. Like, hey, what, what's going on here? What is, what's this water that we are in and that sort of feeds this feeling of, of not enoughness? Um, and yeah. coming from my own background, being a, a, a Buddhist practitioner and a meditation practitioner, and finding that so helpful, having some kind of framework uh, or lens that really speaks directly to the feeling of, of not enoughness that some of us feel, that is really some of the, the impact behind it. Thank you, thank you. So basically, I think that one thing I got out of that was that. Uh, Feeling worthy, feelings of feeling worthy are part of the demons that we're, we're discussing in the title. Uh, those demons that come to visit us, those thoughts, those thought forms, those energies that confuse us and undermine our, um, our confidence, undermine our ability to operate in this world. Um, what are some of the most common, uh, demons you and, and those around you, um, face? And what are some easy strategies to invite them in without succumbing to them? question. I, so the book, um, and thank you so much for reading it, the book is, is based on uh, the Four Noble Truths of, of Buddhism, which is uh, sort of the, the core teaching, um, core teaching uh, of Buddhist philosophy. Um, and it really just kind of highlights that there is this fundamental sort of misunderstanding of um, who we think we are uh, and the ways in which we self-identify in the world and, and how that causes all sorts of uh, stress and tension and, and healing for all. Um, so the first novel truth is that you know, it's difficult to be a human, that we're going to experience dissatisfaction, we're going to experience suffering, we're going to experience boredom, just this all-pervasive sense of um, like not quite sitting in or not quite being able to relax in our everyday experience. Um, second of which says there's a really good reason for that. And I think to your question, this is um, the point that's so highlighting is that there's a, a, a really good reason why we find it so difficult to relax and why we experience dissatisfaction, discomfort, suffering, you know, so this is that we uh, are always caught in this, this tension in our lives that causes us to um, suffer or be dissatisfied, which is that there's some kind of experience that we always want to have. There's something that, that we want, um, which is the first is the root poison, first desire, clinging, craving, grasping. Um, and there's always some kind of experience that we want to be avoided in the process. Which is the second of the root poisons, which is aversion or aggression. Um, that there's something that we want to be moving towards, but also some kind of experience that we want to be avoiding. Um, and the third root poison, which is ignorance, um, kind of speaks to the fact that this is happening, this fundamental tension is happening all day, every day, throughout our lives, and that we don't even realize it's happening. Like, that's the ignorance piece. Um, and also the ignorance piece speaks to um, the fact that we really kind of dissipate or crystallize our identity around um, our circumstances. That we, we, we believe on some level that we are our circumstances and that when things are going well 
that means good things about us. And when things are going poorly, that means not good things about us. And you really kind of internalize, um, we internalize these things that are true, the things that are true. So the, the demons that I speak of in the book really kind of show up at this intersection of um, the food and poison, of clinging grasping, always something that we're, we're trying to get our hands on, aversion, the thing that we're trying to avoid. Uh, you know, advertisement knows this very well. Lose uh, we 10 pounds in 30 days, a.k.a. the thing that we want to be having, uh, without experiencing any kind of deprivation, any kind of uh, sacrifice, a.k.a. the thing that we want to be avoiding. Um, and then the ignorance aspect of the food we poison would be that we um, kind of base our, our view of self, or we base our self-identity on whether or not we're able to get that thing that we want while simultaneously avoiding that thing that we don't want. And it just causes all kinds of stress. It just causes so much, um, so much misplaced identity, which then in turn leads to things like shame, rage, anger, jealousy, depression. Um, so when I talk about the demons in this book, are these, these kind of um, afflicted mind states uh, that we all experience on some level. Um, this is really kind of the crux of it. This is, this is where, um, in Buddhist thought, it comes from, and is this fundamental tension that's laid on, and, uh, the second number two. This is these three, three questions. Thank you, thank you. So, uh, and also it speaks to the organization of the book, that the book is organized by, um, first dealing with the, um, after instruction material, the first thing with the four noble truths, and the Eightfold Path, and also goes into, uh, for listeners, just to understand the organization of the book, um, it goes into each of the eightfold, eightfold steps in the Eightfold Path. Um, and then um, we, we were talking a little bit about um, how we tell ourselves stories to, um, you know, kind of alleviate these uh, or address these um, demons or address these uh, kind of energy, thought energies that are negative. Um, and the question is about uh, storytelling and how can we leverage that storytelling, the stories we tell ourselves, to, um, you know, kind of be more healthy or be more beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I think what they're referring to is um, beneficial view or beneficial, yeah, beneficial view. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so the book is laid out for another two, uh, the fourth number two is the Eightfold Path, um, which, uh, is, I really look at the Eightfold Path as being kind of a, a tactical, hands-on, boots on the ground way of living our lives or sort of participating in our lives, uh, in a way that, that reveals the, the worth of ourselves and, and all things, um, which, you know, it's, it's kind of a beautiful holistic framework for looking at all of these different aspects of our lives and, and always kind of keeping a finger on the pulse of the way in which we're showing up or we're participating in the world that we live in. So, beneficial view um, is kind of where the, the eightfold path begins and it's very holistic, so it isn't linear, there isn't like a step-by-step path, like a one, two, three, four, five. 
from. But I think the way in which they have is laid out, it begins with an official view because um, our whole world begins with our views, even with our perspective, our point of view, um, which shapes the way in which we show up, which shapes the way in which we um, sort of participate in our lives. Um, and I think the beauty of the, the April Topic Code, but also a beneficial view coming back to your question, um, is that there is no kind of right answer, um, that it's it, it's really non-dogmatic in that it, it leaves us up to us. It leaves it up to us, knowing that all of our lives are different, the circumstances are different, um, and it really sort of encourages us to take this on as a working hypothesis, or take this on as an experiment in the world. Uh, you know, what, what does it mean to have beneficial views? Um, which sort of foremost means looking at the stories that we tell ourselves. Information and store our memories and the way that we share things that are important. Uh, we've been storytellers for millennia, ever since mythology, the fables, uh, right down to Netflix. Like, we love stories. Uh, I was just out with a friend the other night. She was like, I'm just going to go home and drag myself into bed and watch my stories. <laughs> Which is, you know, we love stories. So I think the question is, you know, what what actually, based on this framework, in the context of, of the NMC, um, is beneficial view? What is beneficial view? And, and what are some of the stories that we tell ourselves that we don't that are not beneficial? Uh, and one of the most simple inquiries and the most simple questions that's told in the book is, um, is this healthcare or is this which, you know, I think medication, the beauty and the benefit of medication, there are many of them. One of them is that um, it really gives us such a clear um, look at our minds. And in the frontal view of our minds and what our minds do. And it's here on the, on the medication session that we can see a lot of our own stories, a lot of our own narratives, and, and recognize that some of the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and the way that the world works and, you know, what is good and what is bad, um, a lot of these stories aren't even ours. That we just inherited them somewhere along the way, whether from the culture that we live in, from our family's origin. Um, and I think, you know, the beauty of beneficial really is that it really encourages us to like poke a stick at our stories a little bit. So, you know, it's just, is this our benefit does this for us? Um, which, you know, is, is kind of that, that first step and, and really taking a, a very discerning and intentional look at how we participate. And you tell us a great story about um, this kind of, along these lines, uh, since we just passed Thanksgiving, uh, there was a story about the turkey cooking, uh, about how we kind of pass along stories and pass along traditions and uh, if you tell that story about uh, the the um, woman who cooks turkey, ha- half is cut off, I believe, and you have an interesting story about that and uh, how that illuminates our relationship with authority and tradition might be a good story to tell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, gosh, I don't know if I should that. There was a, um, an acquaintance of mine who... Um, 
you know, just give an illustration of, of how these kind of inherited traditions work or these inherited storybooks. Um, there's an acquaintance of mine who every year for Thanksgiving it is her family tradition to cut the top off of the turkey before putting the turkey in the oven. Um, and at some point somebody said, you know, why, why do you do this? Why do you, why do you cut the top off of the turkey before you put it in the oven? You know you don't have to do that. But that's a really great question. I do it because my mom did it. Here, let me call my mom and, and ask her why. So she calls her mom. She's like, Mom, why do we always cut the top off of the turkey before we put it in the oven? And I'm like, well, I think that's a great idea. I've always just done it, or that's a really great question. I've always just done it because your grandma does it. So her mom calls her mom, her grandma, and said, you know, Hey, why do we why do we cut the top off of the turkey before we put it in the oven? And this this acquaintance of mine, her grandmother, told her mother, Oh, you know, I started doing that when I lived in this tiny apartment in Chicago and there was a really kind of small confection oven and the only way to cook the turkey on Thanksgiving was to cut the top off so that it would sit in the oven. <laughs> and because that's the way that I learned how to make turkey that's the story that I always did it. And then that's the way that she taught her daughter to do it. And then that she taught her daughter to do it. Yeah. And, you know, here we are, 60, 70 years later, and this woman is cutting the top off of her turkey to put it in the oven without really kind of knowing why. It's just the way that it's always been done. Um, which, yeah, I'm glad, that, I'm glad that you brought that, that story up. It is very Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's really great. And I think that really speaks to, um, no, when we think about the, the, the relationship between ultimate truth and personal truth in the benefit, beneficial communication, um, chapter, uh, it's really interesting that we think about, you know, things about how things work for us and how our personal truths and, and if you illuminate a little bit of the relationship between, you know, what we consider or we think of like ultimate truth that we think of as, as a personal truth. Yeah. 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 So I, It will fall down. 
on the ground, um, or the truth of water and condensation, that when water reaches a boiling point, it will turn into steam, or when it hits a freezing point, it will turn into ice. Like these are things that we can all kind of point at in the physical world and say, you know, this is, this is kind of the capital T truth. It's really hard to condemn this, and we can all objectively point to it and say, you know, this is, this is the truth of the way that the world was. So, um, what I think is so interesting about these four noble truths is that, um, the Buddha, who is just a god, who is a god or a saint or kind of like godhead figure, um, he dedicated his life to seeing into, um, the truth of the human experience or, or kind of the way in which, um, the human mind operates when faced with reality. Um, and what he outlined as being the four noble capital T foods, um, he said, you know, don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. However, use this as a science experience. Go, go take it to talk and, and see if it holds up in the way that gravity does or in the way that water does. Um, because again, he was, he was just some guy who was able to see into the human experience and, and codify it in the way that, in the way that gravity was codified as a, um, like a, 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 a scientific way of explaining that what goes up must come down. So these four noble foods, um, are open and encouraged to be explored, um, but also outlined as kind of the, the basic framework for the human experience. Um, and I think looking at, looking at capital T truth as something that is objective, um, that we can all kind of point to and say, you know, yes, I am experiencing this as well, um, is very different from lowercase which I know that I've been around personally seeing the truth all the time, which is simply the truth of all experience. So sometimes you'll hear people say, well, my truth is X, Y, Z. And it's, it's the truth that we have experience, um, which is no less of a valid truth than, say, gravity, um, but it is a different kind of truth because it's a subjective truth. It's something that um, because we have experience as such, um, might not be somebody else's experience of the situation. Um, so I think when it comes to, to kind of highlighting the distinction between capital T case gravity and lower case cases, the truth of my experience, um, and we recognize that sometimes the truth of our experience and not the capital T truth, um, it really allows for a lot of room for others to exist in the same room. That this is the truth of my experience, but this over here might be the truth of your experience, and this over here might be the truth of your experience. Um, and I think it it has the potential to um, a make us a lot more other people's experiences, recognizing that our experience isn't the only truth that there is; it isn't the capital truth. Um, and and b I think it really kind of paves the way for some constructive communication to itself. And we and we can um really sort of like stand in the state of our experience while also recognizing that somebody else's truth of their experience um is equally as good. And neither are the kind of infallible capital Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you, thank you. 
And also it reminds me that, um, you know, all of our personal truths and all of our personal experiences are heavily influenced by the actions that we've taken in the past and the, uh, talking a little bit about karma and how you define as or you use the term habit energy, uh, I believe, which reminds me a little bit of muscle memory, um, you know, kind of a way in which we are influenced by our previous actions and, and, and constantly in that flow of, you know, our personal truths are, are emerging out of all the actions we're taking. And you can tell us a little bit about how karma plays into that and uh, w- what role you think, um, you know, and, and how you define this habit energy, if you can clarify that a little bit. Yeah. 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 So karma, I love karma. <laughs> yeah. Karma's one of my favorite topics to, to think about and read about and talk about. Um, in part because I, I think um, the word karma um, has such a, a kind of uh, like, a, like a misunderstanding that's close around it, um, where you know the idea of karma, the Western idea of karma, is if you do something bad, something bad is going to happen to you, right? Like if you if you lie to me and then later on in the day slip down the stairs on your butt, that's your karma. That's your bad karma. Or if you do something good, if you hold the door open for and then you find out later that you know, you've got a mysterious $100 check in the mail, that's your good karma because you did good deeds. Um, and it's just kind of a tip for tap understanding of, of karma um, that I think is, is it's just kind of fun to debunk in a lot of ways because um, karma really, the difference word karma just means Karma is just action. Um, and rather than being kind of like a quick for chat, like accounting system of like, you do one good thing, one good thing will happen to you. It's more about looking at the actions that we're taking and how that's planting habits or how that's planting seeds with a habit energy in our own mind. So when we do something that is full of aggression, like say there is a fly in front of my face, because I'm trying to have this conversation with you, if I reached out and, like, smacked it in between my palms, what I'm doing is I'm just planting the karma and strengthening the karma. The next time that I encounter something that I don't like, to act out in aggression towards me. Because it's the habit that is accumulated through even our earliest thoughts and intentions acting throughout the day. Um, so... Karma or, or habit energy, um, I really think it's something to think of is, is just being like a muscle memory, not implicit memory system, um, in the way that, you know, you, you don't really have to think about like bending down and tying your shoes. Your shoelace becomes, comes untied, you don't have to stop and think, okay, how do I tie a shoe again? So I put this lace over this lace and then I turn it open, right? You just know. It's muscle memory system. You just know and you just do it. And in a lot of ways, this is how karma works. It's just kind of the, the habits that we've accumulated, the habits of mind, habits of action, um, that move us through our day, that we don't even stop to think about. Um, and I find karma is really helpful, particularly, you know, when we're, when we're looking at, um, some of the habits that we have that are maybe not so beneficial, or maybe not so helpful. Uh, you know, coming up to the new year, it's always around this time of year that 
you know, people make their New Year's resolutions and outline that, okay, this is the year that I'm going to finally do X, Y, Z. Um, and then I think that can be the tendency when our best intentions for ourselves fall through um, to be very hard on ourselves. Be like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I messed it up again. Or I'm a total failure. Or, you know, I never follow through. You know, my mom is right. I am totally lazy. Um, where I premise as, no, 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 no. It isn't personal. These are just the ingrained, but really sort of a deeply entrenched habit energy where at some point it just becomes muscle and it just becomes default. And that it actually takes a lot of work through the ship in a different direction, whether it be the habit of mindset we're trying to change, um, our, you know, our, our kind of like repetitive playback loops, those voices that live inside of our head, for uh, lack of a better description, or our physical habits that we're trying to change is that, um, when we look at it through the view of karma or these actions that we've reified over and over and over and over and over and over again in the kindness phase in our life, Knocking the fly in front of me, planting the habit energy of, of acting out in an effective manner the next time that I encounter something that I don't like. Um, even from that view, it isn't, it isn't personal when you kind of like fall through on a best intention for change. Um, and can really, really set us up for more kind of a long day for thinking about it is that, you know, we're, we're consistently throughout the day in Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and also you're talking a little bit about in the book about um, the kind of the purposeful, having a purpose versus living a purposeful life. And I thought it was very interesting because you were uh, kind of uh, criticizing or, or kind of illuminating kind of some of the problems with um, self-help books is that, you know, sometimes having a purpose, they, they, they misconflate, you know, having a purpose of living a purposeful life. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of how you, can, how we can bring intentionality into um the picture and, and kind of bring an intention that will help us to live a purposeful life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think in writing this chapter, um, when I was writing this chapter, there were a number of things that I had been reading and, and kind of hearing uh, in the self-help world, um, and being a part of this organization as a coach for the past 10 years, I'm, I'm like very much a part of that um, world, and, and kind of like very used to doing some of our, the languaging that's wrapped around it. Um, and something that I think for some time has been sort of pulling at me a little bit, a little under the skin, um, is this notion that we all have a purpose. We all have a life purpose. And I think it's a really kind of brave and courageous and admirable thing 
for people to decide that they're going to, um, again, buff the narrative that they received um, of what it means to earn money and how to job, and instead commit themselves to finding their purpose. Um, but there was always something about that, that that didn't really fit right. And I think it's any idea that um, if we all have a purpose, in the same way that, you know, maybe we all have a government, or, you know, there's like the one that's out there for us. Uh, what happens if we don't find it? What happens if we don't find our, like, one true purpose? If we don't find, like, our one true family? Does that mean that our life is wasted? Or that there's something incomplete about us and about the way that we live our lives? And of course the answer is no, absolutely not. And you know what? That's really disruptive, actually. To sort of view our life as being kind of unfulfilled or, or wasted or um, like our potential not realized um, because we didn't find our one true purpose. Um, and I think something about these two things that I, I personally find really helpful in kind of counteracting this, um, this kind of like desire to find our purpose. Um, is that there's a heavy emphasis on really, again, participating in our lives, participating in our lives, as though everything has purpose. That nothing is wasted, nothing is lost, even the tiniest, banal moments of, you know, reading a book on a Sunday afternoon or, um, you know, walking from our house to the subway to work. Like, even those kind of throwaway moments that we don't consider to be purposeful, um, still has purpose. Because our lives are so special. And there's a real heavy emphasis in these teachings on, um, getting to know the, the, the preciousness and the worth and the value of our human life, regardless of what our circumstances happen to be at the moment. That every, every, Every moment in our life is um, irrepeatable. It is um, finite. We don't get another life. Like, make no mistake, this is a limited time and reason. Like, we get this life for a very short amount of time. Um, and really recognizing what a, for lack of a better word, like, what a, what, a, what a blessing every moment that we have is. Um, I was just down in New Orleans with my husband, and I did you not, there were, I think it was like three or four Lyft drivers, um, because of course I didn't have a car down there, so I was taking Lyft everywhere. Um, so I would get in the car and be like, hey, how are you doing? Well, good day. And they would sincerely answer the same day. I'm above ground. It's a day above ground, but it is a good day. Um, and I think when talking about purpose, um, and how perhaps we don't necessarily have a purpose in the same way that we might not have a family. Um, to instead begin to engage in our lives and engage in our world as though every moment has purpose and everything is purposeful, everything that we experience is purposeful, even the process like that can be composted into something that feels kind of useful and workable and maybe even beneficial in the long run. Um, you know, it, again, it lets us access a little bit. It, it takes the pressure off of, you know, 
respond and ask for input quickly. Instead, this is a lot of encouragement to live our lives as though that's what it's saying. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that also speaks to the, uh, the curse of being busy, you know, that everyone's so busy, everyone's so busy. And I saw this interesting meme where, uh, you know, the, the, they call it the, the meme was like philosopher's excuse where they were like, you know, I'm, I'm this Saturday, I'm, I'm busy being, uh, you know, I was like, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I can't go out because I'm busy being. And that was interesting because it's like, instead of, you know, being busy, we're busy being, you know, instead of just being in, being in the moment, being, uh, present, being, uh, and bringing our presence. So, uh, it's a great antidote to that, um, that busyness that we all have. I think we talk a little bit about that and about how, uh, cause one thing that was interesting also was about, um, in the beneficial effort, um, chapter, there was a, a, ch- a little section or a section about, uh, prana leaks and how, uh, we, we all get tired. We all feel, um, exhausted and, and disheartenment. And, uh, you talk a little bit about, um, how we can counter that using the four exertions to protect our energy. If you talk a little bit about that, especially during the holiday season, I know a lot of people are, are experiencing that, that exhaustion and that tiredness. So you can tell us a little bit about that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Yeah, to your point, it's, it's funny. One of the questions that I get all the time, especially the meditation teacher, is why is it so hard to commit to a meditation practice? <laughs> because at this point, like, we all kind of know that meditation is good for us. And, or at the very least, that it isn't, it isn't going to hurt us. It isn't bad for us necessarily. Um, and yet it's really hard to stick to. It's something that I hear all the time. Like, it's the first thing when we're busy that gets kicked off of our list. Um, and I honestly think one of the big reasons why meditation practice is so difficult to stick to consistently is because it isn't entertaining. It isn't entertaining. Unless, of course, you find your mind to be incredibly entertaining, which some people do, where it's like, ooh, what's, like, what's this circus? What's this <laughs> circus up here that I've been living with? Um, and it isn't productive. It isn't productive in the way that we think of productivity as, like, quantifiable. That is, I do X, I'll get Y results. So, it isn't entertaining, and it isn't productive. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my calendar, 90% of my time is spent doing something that's either productive or that's entertaining. And usually the entertainment comes to like take the edge off of being productive all day. So to have something in our, our lives, a regular practice that we're committing to that is neither of these things, um, but actually helps us to kind of like settle and land and digest our experience and get intimate with our own mind and really give us an opportunity to be very intentional about the way that we participate in our lives and, you know, the way that we relate to ourselves and others. I think um, it's an oddball. It's a real oddball because it doesn't fit into the bucket of entertaining our productivity. It's so uh, necessary to remain human to just have some time where, you know, as you said, we're being. So just yeah. And there's nothing that we have to create, and there's nothing that we have to accomplish. And that it's in these days, I personally find that a right with appreciation of, of one item is given an opportunity to kind of settle and to land the busyness of the mind, like eventually kind of 
Gumpy's sort of abandoned some of these, these bad habits, or when Gumpy does some of these bad habits, um, is planting. It's planting or um, cultivating. Taking a look at what it is that we now want to do with this space that we've created. By building some boundaries, saying no to things, pulling up some of these seeds, now we actually have some mental space and some time to think about what we want to plant in this world, what it is that we would like to see come to fruition. And then the fourth is appreciation. The fourth is appreciation, the fourth is expression, which just means um, taking a good look at what is already in place in our life, what we what we planted, what we cultivated, that does nourish us. And that does serve us like these some of these relationships that we have that we find to be really nourishing, some of these practices that we have, these consistent rituals that we have for ourselves that are really nourishing. And just appreciating them. You know, we can even think of this as being a gratitude practice of really just taking inventory of the good stuff that's already formally needed in our lives. Um and giving ourselves a little bit of credit for that. So taking care of ourselves in this way. Um, and appreciating the good. So, yeah, four, four, four exertions or four ways of, of thinking about where and how we extend our energy. And first and foremost, basic boundaries, protecting. Second is, um, renunciation and pulling up the weeds for things that don't serve us. The third is, um, planting and cultivating. What is it that we want to grow in this space now that we actually have some space because we're not saying yes to everything? And then the fourth is appreciating the good. It is celebrating what, what's already there. Thank you, thank you. And um, now just to follow that is, it has to do with uh, beneficial mindfulness. You know, so nowadays, you know, as, as you say in the book, um, it's become such a buzzword and such an interesting dynamic to to uh in the popular culture we see so many uh you know memes and so much chatter about mindfulness and um and how it, it's beneficial and how you know it's it's the uh, it's something that that neuroscientists and, and scientists have said have acknowledged is very beneficial um and and generally the meditative path is becoming more and more um acknowledged as being something that's physically um advantageous for health and such if you illuminate a little bit of like how can we cultivate mindfulness uh, in our day-to-day life, maybe just for raising awareness, or what's the technique that you would use that you'd advise people to use to um, cultivate mindfulness? Yeah, that's a great question because to this point, I think as mindfulness becomes more and more just a part of our everyday conversation, like it's such a it's such a cultural buzzword right now, which is great. I mean, I'm so thankful um, that we're all kind of recognizing the importance of um, our attention span and just how fragmented our attention span can be. You know, there's so much that is attempting to capture our attention throughout the day. I read a stat recently um, that was published in, in 2018 uh, that we see upwards of 4,000 advertisements every single day. There's a lot of money that's being made on capturing our attention. Like lights, eyeballs, shopping carts, uh, it all translates in the attention economy. So I think the fact that we're, we're starting to consider how valuable our attention actually is, you know, there's this whole economy that's 
based on our attention and capturing our attention. That's so true if our attention like it's valuable and like it's worth something because it really, really is. Um, so yay for mindfulness. I'm so glad that it is becoming such a this everyday part of our conversation. I think, however, the flip side of that is that the the, the actual definition or understanding of what mindfulness is can get really lost in translation. It can get really watered down. Uh, you know, now we have like mindful knitting and mindful parenting and mindful dating. And uh, my favorite is that Whole Foods carries a, a line of mindful mayonnaise. <laughs> you know, I feel like once our mayonnaise becomes mindful, like we might have jumped the shark. We might need to like reassess what mindfulness actually is. Um, so, the working definition of mindfulness that I always come back to because it is just like a pithy little instruction manual. It's so clear, so complete. Um, it was laid out by John Cabotson who, um, who developed mindfulness based stress reduction uh, and really helped kind of like popularize the science behind mindfulness and meditation. And he says that mindfulness is the awareness that arises when we're paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, and without judgment. So the awareness that arises when we're paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, and without judgment. And I, I love this definition of mindfulness for a couple of reasons. The very first is that, to your point, it highlights the fact that mindfulness is not something outside of us. It isn't something that we have to go out and acquire. It's something that is inherent to all of us, it's by virtue of being a human being, that we have the capacity for mindfulness already within us, and that it's more about creating the conditions, these kind of specific conditions, for our our own inherent mindfulness to spontaneously So it's the awareness that arises when we're paying attention on purpose in the present moment and without judgment. And the second thing that I really um, relate to about this definition is that non-judgment piece. Because I think it's the non-judgment aspect or, or working with our tendency to judge um, our experience that really separates a mindfulness practice from just a, a regular old paying attention. Is that we're paying attention in a very specific way. On purpose, in the present moment, and without judgment. And that's the real tip, the non-judgmental piece, because, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, we're so, I think, um, um, conditioned or habituated or, or used to um, judging our entire world on the binary. And this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, talking about these three poisons, is that we're always kind of looking at the world through the lens of, is this for me or is this against me? Is this delicious? Is this disgusting? Is this good? Is this bad? Do I want this? Do I not want this? Um, and really kind of dividing our walls into these two buckets of, again, fixation, attachment, desire, and aggression or aversion. So it's like, this is a yes, this is a no. And that has served us well as human beings. That is a phenomenal function of the human mind because it allows us to, like, not walk out in traffic. We don't have to stop and think about it. Again, like, karma, like, tying our shoes. We don't have to stop and think, oh, it's, it, it, it's not safe for me to walk out in traffic. Safe, not safe. So it did just really, really well, but I think this, this tendency to, to 
judge our world based on this finance of like for me and against me, good, bad, goes into oversight a lot. Um, and we're constantly kind of viewing our world through this lens. And so the non-judgment piece of mindfulness, what, what we're actually practicing here is can we experience the totality of this moment, whether it's in the exact flavor that we want it to be, whether it's uncomfortable, whether stress arises, anxiety arises in meditation practice, whether it's pretty blissful and divine and you feel like it's just in our body, like regardless of what this moment is, can we be with it in its entirety? Can we expand our capacity in meditation, in practicing mindfulness on the cushion to just be with the totality of our experience without rushing to like make it for us or against us? Or something that's good or something that's bad. And we just be with it instead and just allow ourselves to experience what this is. Without needing to like immediately put some sort of um, judgment call on Very true, very true. Go ahead. The beauty of it is that it, it just makes us more able to hold the totality of our life. When we're more able to hold anything that our life feels at it. And this is where the, you know, we always care about meditation, particularly mindfulness, um, particularly cultivating resilience, you know, like, like emotional resilience. And I think this is, this is a big part of how that develops, is that we're, we're practicing in mindfulness day in and day out. Um, just being with our experience without necessarily having to categorize it or react to it. Thank you, thank you. So I have a few quick announcements as we start to wind down. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations of listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we like to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate or go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power to sponsor this particular show. Every cent helps us to stay on air. So please support independent Korean media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax-deductible to full sense of the law. You can also donate to Radio Brooklyn by shopping through Amazon Smile, Amazon's charity initiative, where you can shop and support a nonprofit of your choice at the same time. It'll cost you nothing. Just go to RadioBrooklyn.org slash smile. Sign up and have an RFB as your donee and start shopping. Um, finally, uh, Radio Brooklyn has uh, available on the apps for iPhone and Android. So go to the app stores for those respective uh, stores for iPhone or Google Play and download the app. It's free, a free mobile app, uh, so you can listen to us on the go. Uh, and if you'd like to keep in touch, uh, go to RadioBrooklyn.org uh, slash newsletter uh, to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for latest news about news, new programming, upcoming RFB events, where you can sign up at RadioBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Okay. So thank you so much, Adriana. Um, if you want to tell people your website um, or any contact, any or your Instagram or anything like that. Sure, yeah. So the website is the same, adrianalimbach.com, L-I-N-B-A-C-H. Uh, my new book is Seeing Take a Seaman, A Buddhist Guide to Feeling Worthy. Um, Instagram handle, again, the same, Adriana Limbach. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really lovely to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll be going out with uh, one of our, a song from one of our previous guests, Lancelot Chaubert, Cherokee Highway.
Thank you so much. Thank you. Mississippi in 61, they watched his daddy die. There, guided by the light of a burning cross, they lit the Delta sky. Oh, Kevin and Willie, ten years old, were best of friends. Only way you could tell them apart was the color of their skin. Come on, Willie, Kevin screamed, let's get out of here. Willie's numb, can't even run, cause he's frozen there with fear. So Kevin takes off through the woods, yelling, I'll be back for you. Running fast, out of breath, can't stop and rest, and his dad would know what to do. Running through the door Well, he sees the eyes of a man And his daddy's washing blood out of a sheet But it won't come off his hands And the blood still runs down Cherokee Highway It's a senseless river and it's filled with old age Two dark sides to Cherokee Highway And black or white blood It still runs red Now the fire is at the fuse In a town that just won't learn And the word is I'll make the white man pay Gonna watch his farmhouse at midnight the flames begin Kevin's daddy's the first to rise So he grabs his gun, grabs his wife And Kevin's still inside From the shadows comes a boy with darker skin Though they killed him 